0: for 20% off your first system. Hello, once again, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, I talk to various people about the five things from their life that they would like to put into a time capsule, four things that they cherish and would like to preserve, and one that they would like to be rid of and never have to think about again. My guest this week is the Reverend Richard Coles. Richard is the regular host of BBC Radio 4 Saturday Live and has often been a guest on panel shows such as QI, uh, Have I Got News For You and Would I Lie To You? He's also a writer and journalist, but he first found fame as a member of the 80s bands Bronski Beat and The Communards, enjoying a number one hit with the song Don't Leave Me This Way with the singer Jimmy Somerville. He was ordained as a priest in 2005. Richard was the inspiration for the character Adam Smallbone, played by Tom Hollander, in the BBC2 sitcom Rev. And he also inspired the character Tom in the Bridget Jones novels and films. Coincidentally, he inspired me to give up dancing after I saw his appearance in the 2017 season of Strictly Come Dancing. In fact, I'd say he's an inspirational round. We recorded this episode around Easter 2020, right in the middle of lockdown, so the quality of this recording is not great. However, that is hopefully outweighed by the quality of the guest. Anyway, let's find out what five things the Reverend Richard Coles would like to put into his time capsule. Hope you enjoy it. It was very strange. I sent you this email this morning, and I suddenly realised that everything I was using had a religious context. (laughs) 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 Do people you find people editing themselves talking to you or
1: not? They do. One thing you um, are—I live on a hill, and uh, I walk down it to get to church from the vicarage, and it's rather a rat run, and people speed down it. But if I'm in my dog collar, they slow down. (laughs) I am a walking traffic calming measure. And then people say the thing with people saying. It kind of doesn't irk me exactly, but it's sort of, I wish they wouldn't. They say, I'm an atheist, sorry. And I think, I don't mind if you're an atheist, I don't care.
0: (laughs) No, it's me that should be sorry. Exactly. (laughs) All right, well, fantastic. Well, let's have a go just so I don't take up your entire day. Okay. Let's start with your first item.
1: Well, the first item that I would be very keen to keep... um, whatever catastrophe should befall, would be my accordion. <laughs> Why? <laughs> everyone says that. Um, well, because I've secretly always loved the accordion. I know it is not to everyone's taste, but I like it because um, I associate it with kinds of music I like, French cafe music, that sort of thing. Also because it's the poor man's orchestra, so everyone can have a go. But also because um, I don't think it's an... It's rather a Cinderella instrument. It's the kind of instrument that people rather looked on. There's a famous cartoon, I think it was in the New Yorker, of the devil greeting people at the gates of hell by handing them an accordion. <laughs> um but I love it. And then I had a parishioner of mine die and he left me his accordion. So I thought, at last my chance has come. So I've started on the accordion. I've now got a wonderful accordion teacher called Janis, who's uh, from Latvia. And uh, we have Zoom accordion lessons, but I've only had four. And how are you doing? Exceptionally well. He calls me his star pupil, but I think he probably says that to all his students. (laughs) Um, My amazing grace is indeed amazing and graceful. My banks and braids of Bonnie Doon, he felt that it was a bit punk. Um, My love theme from The Godfather, he said, was one of the most sinister sounds he'd ever heard. Um, (laughs) But he's just moved me on to some of the cornerstones of the Latvian folk tradition, which I'm working my way through. It's a difficult instrument to play though, isn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, it's because it's three things. So you've got the keyboard, I've, I've got a keyboard one. So I've got a keyboard which my right hand um, is interested in, and that's okay, I know my way around the keyboard. But on the left hand, I've got buttons which play bass notes and chords, and that's a new thing. But the thing that's really different is, of course, bellows you have to provide through your own effort, the necessary air to vibrate the reeds. And the thing is you can nip your move in a bellow if you're not careful. <laughs> so there are all sorts of um uh, procedures that one has to undergo to ensure an even flow of air mm. and not getting a nipple caught uh, in a polka. you know what well, that. Is it that that
0: sort of uh, figure of eight movement? Is that what they... Say? Well, a master would do it like that.
1: Mine is um, not quite that elegant yet. But I've only had four lessons, Mike, so, you
0: know. No, all right. No, well, I'll give you that, yeah. Yeah, I, I once bought in an auction um, six accordions.
1: You didn't? I did. What a find. How much did you pay for them? 50 quid. Get out of here. What sort of accordions were they?
0: Beautiful. All inlaid with mother of pearl. Extraordinary things. I can't play for toffee but um they were such beautiful things and i thought they were clearly a bargain i couldn't resist bidding and you bought them i bought them all i still have one upstairs the others i've given away
1: you gave away accordions yeah hey mr accordion man give an accordion (laughs) to me is your theme tune (laughs) that's me how annoying that i didn't know about this and somebody (laughs) had to die that I should get an accordion. Don't feel bad, Mike. No, I don't. Oh,
0: if I'd only known, I would have been round straight away. Uh, it's a beautiful thing, actually. It's, it still works terribly well. The problem with is that people don't want to buy these things because uh, they sort of say, well, does everything work? And you say, yeah. And then they say, you sure? Because as they get a bit older, they need maintenance. They do. But actually, all of these, I think, had been um, just kept very well. One of them was an enormous thing with an incredible number of buttons on the side.
1: Yeah, there that would be 120 base buttons on that one. Do you know what? Everyone says that when they buy six accordions and auction for 50 quid. They always say, oh, they're, absolute, they're in perfect order. <laughs> You don't actually know, do you, Mike? probably all fly blown and mothy. My
0: grandchildren all made a marvelous noise on them. They would pull them about all over the place and press buttons. So, you know. Yes.
1: The indulgence of a grandfather speaking there, perhaps.
0: <laughs> maybe. Maybe you're <laughs> right. Oh, <laughs> uh, well. What make is your accordion,
1: by the way? Um, my accordion is a soprani, and it's an Italian. There's this wonderful little town in uh, Le Marche. It's called. Ponte something or another. I can't remember. But it is the Cremona of the accordion world. And there are about 40 accordion manufacturers. All the great ones are all based in this little town. Gustozzi, Soprani, and Scarlatti. And they are all family businesses. There used to be hundreds of them. They're down to about 40 now, I think. But it is accordion mecca. Mm. And so if you're into accordions, you will often find your feet take you on a pilgrimage to this little town. It's near Loretto where the flying house in which Jesus' mother died uh, ended up after its flight from Loretto to escape the Horde. You did know about that? Uh, yeah, obviously. No, <laughs> I haven't the faintest idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot, it's a very busy little part of Italy. So not only do you have flying houses that angels carry from Ephesus in present-day Turkey, um, I think they stopped off in Croatia for a sort of rest but then they carried on and they dropped it down in Loretto. Well, if you just go in a bit further from Loretto, you will find this lovely little town full of accordion makers. It lives, it breathes, it exists for accordions. So Le Marque, up
0: until now, I, that's been famous with me as a place where you go if you want to see earthquakes.
1: Very good for earthquakes. Yeah. It was La Matrice, wasn't it, where I think they had the worst of it the last time, mm. um, which is a lovely town. And um, that's very, very sad. But the accordion, Perhaps its plangent reeds could give voice to the anguish that those of that region might feel at the unsteady um, groundings for their existence. Perhaps they could. There is something haunting about the recording. There is something about, and very beautiful, about... I think it's like the blues, isn't it? It gives voice to a kind of depth and intensity of emotion that people who don't normally have access to high art um, use, and that's the only reason why I like it so much. It's, a, it's for every person. It's
0: strange that something so complicated should be a, a peasant instrument, really.
1: Yeah, I mean, th- it just does everything, though. So, you know, effectively, it is an orchestra. It's the poor man's orchestra. And I think you had one person in the village who could play the accordion. Well, then you could have a do every night. And everyone loves a do. Do you remember do's?
0: No, <laughs> oh, I love do's.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love do's. Do you know what I thought the other night? I thought, I think I would give half my kingdom to go for a chicken sack at the nursery,
0: <laughs> Just half.
1: All right, my whole kingdom. Yeah. I'd have a pop of them as well.
0: No, I agree. I think at the moment we all would. Do you know, have you been to Assisi? I'm sure you must have been.
1: I have, yes.
0: Yes. Now, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but is it true that the tomb of St. Francis of Assisi, which is below the great basilica there, yeah. was revealed by an earthquake?
1: Well, <laughs> One hesitates to rain on the parade, mm. but there are all sorts of elements in hagiography where perhaps what actually happened has been rather taken up with what people would have liked to have happened, and the story acquires a certain luster and gloss as a result. So I, it's very interesting, like when you go to the Holy Land and you step in the footsteps of Jesus, well, you know, there's Percentage chances of that being the case. There are bits where you know you absolutely do the steps up to the temple are the same as were in first century, so you know you're following there. But people, you know, they like those stories. Those stories are meaningful. Mm. They settle, and uh, and people kind of, you know, think okay, I'll have some of that. Yes, it's
0: extraordinary, isn't it? How for some people, the wonder of those places has no effect whatsoever. I once followed a bunch of English school children into the tomb of uh, St. Francis of Assisi. So you walk down the steps. There were people prostrate on the floor. They'd walked up the hill on their knees. And this bunch of schoolchildren pushed their way through this devout crowd. And then they fell silent. And I thought, finally, finally they get it. And then one voice, this young lad,
1: said, I ain't got a fucking signal. (laughs) (laughs) And yet, Mike, in a very real sense... Ain't we all got no fucking signal? (laughs) That's very good. I remember once being with a party of pilgrims in Hebron, which is in an occupied and very hostile part um, of Palestine, where relations are extremely tense between Palestinians and Israelis. And uh, it all kicked off. We were in the market there, and there was this incredible exchange of um, stones and gunfire and oaths and insults and everything, and I was, I was responsible for this building. I was trying to make sure people got to safety. And all of a sudden, one of my ladies stopped with, "Ooh, cauliflowers." <laughs> 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 well, we need to come back to these normal things, I think, in moments of of terror. But don't you think it's true? One of the hallmarks of this crisis, isn't it, is that you latch on to the everyday, the familiar, just as a reminder that there was something before this. Yes, indeed. I was thinking of the banality of evil. Uh, is a commonplace, isn't it? But the banality of goodness, I think, is interesting too. Mm. Yeah. Do you see that a lot? I do. I wouldn't want to call it banal. I'd say it was every day. But one of the great things you have as a vicar, you learn as a vicar, just not to get in the way of people organizing their own natural goodness. Mm. And if you don't mess that up too much, or try to think it's all about you, or try to kind of force it into a procrastinate bed of your own, Uh, desires, they'll just quite happily get on and behave beautifully and gracefully and kindly and generously to each other.
0: Yes, absolutely. I I agree. I think it is a natural
1: way for people to behave, particularly when things are made clear to them. And also to, to help people to get it is with some tact and kindness and understanding. Mm. is good. I mean, I was thinking there are lots of people with young families who are living in flats who are going yep. stir-crazy. And I completely understand why you would find a way of justifying to yourself a trip out that perhaps isn't in accordance with the best advice. Mm. And then I just think it's, it's it's patient... I think if people understand it, people realize it, people see the risks that exposes people doing heroic things in hospitals and care homes and, you know, behind closed doors, then I think they do get it. But I think we must help each other to get it. Uh, without being aggressive about it. Apart from those assholes down by the river <laughs> yesterday. They can go fuck themselves. <laughs> <laughs> well, I agree on that as well. I think always in this you have to try to imagine what it's like to be that person. And if you are in a tower block on the 29th floor and the lift isn't working and you haven't got any money and you don't know if you're ever going to work again and your kids are going crazy and maybe they have special needs and not being met, you know, cut them some
0: slack. Yes. And be aware of your own privilege as well, I think.
1: Exactly. I got into a bit of a bait the other day because I couldn't find the right kind of fresh tarragon. (laughs) And after thirty five seconds of kind of crossly bewailing my terrible face, the world, I thought this is perhaps not high on the agenda of everything <laughs> that might hurt
0: people at the moment. No, no. Well that's the moment to pick up the accordion and start playing <laughs> Quite and so. entertain the masses.
1: And so it's a great way of enforcing social isolation is by playing the accordion to people. <laughs> like that. Nobody comes near you. Nowhere near.
0: (laughs) You put a hat down, they walk right round you. Well, okay, lovely. Thank you, Richard. We shall put your accordion into the time capsule. That's the first item. So what's your second item?
1: Um, I'd like the 14th century, please. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, luckily I have it here with me. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I I know it's not everyone's favourite century. Um, The Black Death does hover over it like a dark spectre. And that might seem especially resonant for us dealing uh, with the effects of a pandemic now. But I do really, really like the 14th century. If you could leave the Black Death out of it, I'd be grateful. Okay. But uh, the rest of it I'd, I'd like very much, please. What in particular, is that European 14th century? Yes, I'm not really very well aware of what was happening elsewhere in the 14th century because um, I've been a little parochial about it, perhaps. But it was just an exceptionally cracking century. All sorts of interesting things happened, and my church was built in it. And uh, I would fain hang on to my church. I'd very much like that to come come with me wherever I went. Mm. So I'll keep the church, please. It was unusually built in one effort, Most churches, as you know, are kind of put up over centuries, but mine was built in one go from about 1300 to 1348. And you can see where the last chisel mark was made before the Black Death arrived and presumably subtracted half the workforce or thereabouts. So a work stopped then, and it's a very beautiful building. And, you know, one of the nicest things about being a vicar is that you get to spend chunks of your life in historic buildings. In special ways. I've spent a lot of my time in there on my own, and I know that building intimately well. And I know that it's not just a collection of masonry and glass and metalwork. It's the summary of the kind of hopes and fears and dreams and dreads of generations of people it's also the third one on the site there was a norman church before that but who cares about norman's boring century and then it was the saxons before that but that was a boring century too but the 14th century 14 yes please Yeah, plantagenets uh, you know and they're sort of great aren't they and the edwards all going edward the first Longshanks, and then you've got edward the second the big gay king and then Edward the Third, the Black Prince. there's so much going on. Mm. Yes, it's a cracking century. and uh, quite a bit of war. Yes, exactly. If you were handy with a sword or a mace or a longbow, um you were quids in, you do very, very nicely, I think. I think there are two periods in English culture and history which I would have enjoyed very much. One of them is the fourteenth century. If you subtract death by being hacked to pieces on a battlefield, I wouldn't be very good at that. Well, there was a clergyman. You know that 50% of the clergy of England died in the Black Death because of dutifully attending the deathbeds to hear the confessions of people who were dying. So uh, it was very easy to die of the Black Death if you were a clergyman. The other one I'd like would be the sort of 16th, 17th century when the Book of Common Prayer and the Authorized Version and Shakespeare. We're doing that extraordinary thing to the English language. Mm. That'd be great. Mm. Also, because Chaucer, fourteenth century. Thank you very much. Oh, yeah. No, you're making a good case for it. Well, yes. I mean, you know what it is, Mike? I think it's partly that sense of endurance. I, mean, I sit in my church sometimes mm. early in the morning on my own, saying morning prayer, and the sun kind of hits the clear story, and it sort of prints onto the opposite wall. And just moves very, very slowly as the sun comes up. And I look at it and I think somebody like me has done exactly the same in the 14th century, in the fifteenth century, during the Civil War, during the plagues, during the First World War, during smallpox, during bubonic plague, during, you know, whatever the Wars of the Roses. And that gives you a, I don't know, connects you to that powerful narrative and I think we all need powerful narratives we especially need it now don't we because what's familiar and certain is all of a sudden strange and wobbly. Yes
0: and a sense of uh, longevity I think the sense of of continuity.
1: And it's not that long ago. No. There's a little bit up in my chancel I'm sort of pottering around with hand sanitizer at the moment and making sure that everything is compliant and I just noticed when the sun strikes um, the south wall of the chancel it reveals this frieze, and it's just a frieze of a flower shape that was obviously executed in the 14th century when the chancel went up, but has been sort of lost under whitewash. It's only when the sun strikes it at a certain angle that you see it. And uh, and I love that. Yeah. God, I must pay a visit. Do. It's a splendid church. Mm. It's in Simon Jenkins' thousand best
0: churches. <laughs> Not numbered then. He didn't do one to a thousand, did he? That would be... No, so but unfair. he did do a
1: star system. I have to say that I often find this the case with Simon Jenkins is that his star ratings sometimes they don't stand up to the most rigorous scrutiny. <laughs> Although I shouldn't complain because we do very beautifully at well, and he gets it more or less right. But he did have some extremely eccentric judgments in stanford i felt <laughs> okay i'll tell him especially
0: would you <laughs> i will do all right lovely Well, the whole 14th century yes um quite a large time capsule yes but um i think we can do it we'll put that in thank you you're welcome okay we move on to number three right we're going to take a short break here for some ads we'll be back in a minute
1: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry.
0: Welcome back. Okay. okay, let's find out what the third thing is that Richard Coles would like to put into his time capsule.
1: Um, number three, I would like my icon of the Virgin um, Hodogetria, if you'd be so kind. Do you want to see it? <laughs> yes, please. Hang on. I've only, I've got jeans on underneath my shirt. Uh, it's all right, but nobody's going to
0: see it. It's an audio version.
1: <laughs> That's just as well. Yes. So this is... Look at that. Can you see that all right?
0: Oh, I can, yes.
1: Well, she... She's one of my favourite things. She is an icon. She's Karelian. And she was made in the 18th century, end of the 18th century. It's not classy or anything. It's a very sort of popular, um, unpolished icon but um, so she hung, hung in a church in Karelia sort of near the Finnish border with Russia until uh, the 1940s in the second world war when the church was burned down and the icons were rescued but they fell into the hands of Soviet officials and they went to Moscow and this one was used to pay a spy so they these the soviets in cahoots with the east german the gdr days the gdr the east german secret police used to run spies because obviously tyrannical power needs to keep an eye on the oppo but this spy who was a man of high culture was able to keep an eye on the intelligentsia didn't want to get paid or couldn't be paid in money so they paid him in looted and rescued and salvaged icons instead and so it ended up in the private collection of this spy in east berlin History took another turn. The Berlin Wall fell, he died, and the icons were bought by a dealer, and I managed to get this one. And I wanted an icon that had been not just for me to look at, but an icon that looked back at me, which is what icons do, of course. They're more sort of windows rather than paintings. But an icon that kind of spoke about its kind of humble origins in forests in you know, kind of north of the European continental landmass. Hmm. But they went through Tsarism and revolution and war and disruption and espionage and the Cold War and sale and barter and con, all that kind of stuff and ended up on a vicarage wall in Northamptonshire. (laughs) something I really love about that. Yes. It is quite extraordinary when you see those
0: things because you realise that actually there have been many times where they could easily have been abandoned and uh, people have chosen them as the thing to preserve. Yes. I mean, I'm sure that icon would have been in a situation at some point where people had to flee or run or pack and get out. Yes. And uh, they chose to
1: take it with them. Exactly. It's a bit like... um You know, people who live in places which are strategically important to major powers often become good at making what's important portable. I mean, the Jewish diaspora preeminently at that. But it's also true, I think, of places like Karelia, where, you know, armies march left and right in every sense. And so you grab what's important to you and you take it with you. And icons are portable and important. I love them. And also, there is something extraordinary about eastern christianity and in its iconographic tradition that i just find completely um compelling and it is this idea that it's not a surface it's a transparency Mm. and the icon you look at it but you also look through it and discover that it's looking back at back at you Mm. it's very powerful
0: Mm.
1: it is a beautiful thing uh, it's very simple, though, isn't it?
0: I mean, simple in the sense that it's it's not like one of those great Russian icons where every inch of it is is gold-plated, as it were.
1: Yes, this is not Andrei Rublyov. This is not the kind of thing that was made in one of the great uh, centers for icon writing. This would be your Tesco Essentials icon, if you see what I <laughs> mean. Um, a sort of bog standard version. But that's not important about it. It's beautiful because it's dense with the prayers of people mm. and with the sort of, it's the same with the church building. It's the same with, you know, that, that it's not just material. You know, they are places where prayers have been valid to paraphrase T.S. Eliot. And there's something about that that gives them, and you see it all the time in the church. I see people come in all the time who would not describe themselves or conceive of themselves as religious to any extent at all, but they know that there is something about that building, which is unique and distinctive. And you can take stuff there that you wouldn't take anywhere else. Long may it last. Yes, well, I I
0: remember as a young man sort of denigrating my mother's love of icons. She was a Catholic. Right. So our house was full of them. And some of them were certainly what you would call gaudy. Yes. And as a young man, I remember thinking, how ridiculous. She's got no taste at all, my mother. And then, you know, When she died and I had to clear these things out, these were the things that I most wanted to keep. Interesting. And I still have a thing that she had by her bed, which if I describe it to you, you'll realize just how gaudy it is. It is a glass painting of Jesus on a wooden panel and behind it is a light bulb. And the light bulb is directly, of course, behind the sacred heart. Yeah. Uh, so that at night she would turn this light on and there would be a light emanating from the sacred heart of Jesus. And that meant she slept soundly. Yes. And to not see that as a young man,
1: I'm very disappointed
0: in myself that I didn't realize the worth of it.
1: But it's interesting, is that We often, because we um, pride ourselves on our impeccable taste, miss what's important to people, don't we? Mm. And of course, all those things are very subjective anyway. One of my favorite stories about that, my friend um, Paddy and Frank, they have, uh, she's dead now, but their mother was very old, lived in Dublin, was very devout Catholic. And she lived on her own in quite a big house, and they were worried that she wouldn't you know, be able to manage. So they got her a call button, the only thing she put around her neck, and she just refused to use it. And in the end, Frank got a bit cross and went round there, and said, where is the call button? And she found that he, she put it round the neck of her statue of the Virgin Mary on the stairs. And Frank <laughs> said, why have you put it there? And she said, the Holy Mother's been looking after me this 90 years. It would be a slap in her face to put that thing round my neck.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, bless her. Uh, well, that's. I agree. I think that's the way to look at life. And also, if these things give people solace, then uh, who are we to, to say that they're absurd
1: or ridiculous? And it's not just solace. I think they connect us to things which are also about challenge that remind us of the person we might want to be and the gap between what we aspire to and what we achieve. And, and there's a bit of help to deal with that, I think, is is not just um, a source of solace. I think it's a source of, of challenge, and that's important.
0: Mm. I mean, I am the last person I thought would, when the, the priest got in touch with me after my mother died and had said, in a very pointed way we're thinking of having some new stained glass windows made and i knew where that was leading yeah he said it would be so lovely to remember your mother in the church that she spent so much time in so i said how much for the stained glass windows and uh, my younger brother and i did commission one excellent in the corner it just says for olive yeah. which is my mother's name lovely Yeah, well, yes, I suppose. It is lovely, actually. It's a lovely thing, Dad, because she would have loved it. Although she would have said, oh, what a fuss. Why are you making such a fuss?
1: People always say that, but actually, they actually really want the fuss. Nearly always, they really want the fuss. Yes. Uh,
0: Okay, right, let's put that beautiful icon, uh, which people can go to our website to see a photograph of. There's a little advert. (laughs) 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 <laughs> and uh, we'll put that inside the time capsule, Richard. Okay, so we've got two more items. Now, one of these is one that you want to reject, and one is one that you would like to keep. Yes.
1: Which do you want first?
0: Uh, that's absolutely up to you. You decide.
1: Well, I know what I want to go. Right. Descans.
0: <laughs> Is that in the carol sense of a descant?
1: Especially in the carol sense of a descant, because they are the ones that I hate with an undiminished and unfading hatred. I hate them with a the perfect hatred, as the psalmist put it, the Christmas descants. I've always, you know, people say that in the event of a nuclear war, that um, cockroaches and spider plants will survive, but also the descant to a little town of Bethlehem. I think that will do there. <laughs> and if you're a vicar... And especially if you're a vicar in a place, my last parish was um, St. Paul's Knightsbridge, where we did probably 30 carol services for all the big charities, because it was central London. And when you have heard the descant to a little town of Bethlehem 30 times, <laughs> um, all I wanted to do was just to sign up to Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and never ever admit of the transcendent reality and majesty of God ever, ever <laughs> again. So I hate them. Um, I've sung when I was a chorister when I was a kid. And um, because I was uh, a boy treble, um, I got to sing them all uh, at an age where my ambitions were unbridled and my sense of self-importance um, less well disguised than it is now. So the descant obviously, was my chance to shine. And all I remember was sort of just shrieking our way through those terrible descants harp the herald angels sing mm. once in royal david city and worst of all Oh little town of bethlehem and uh, and the thing is you see, i wasn't the only one and so now at carol services no matter where you go there will always be somebody or maybe two people in the congregation who remember the descant and will join in in some hideous rasping tuneless uh, overexerted way and it I can't say it ruins Christmas for me, but it does turn plum pudding to ashes in my mouth and blow out all the candles on my Christmas tree. And also, it makes Pongo, my dog, howl. He literally only has to hear a desk not just a carol desk but a desk any hymn at all. And he howls. And the only other thing which has that effect upon him um, are the emergency services sirens. <laughs> so to me, they are like the emergency services sirens descans. <laughs> Whoever thought of that? <laughs> and, and I mean, if I were to be sort of snooty, not snooty about it, but if I were to make the case for it, one thing I like about Anglicanism is that it's a very kind of orderly and even liturgy. Everyone is welcome, as it were. And I think we come together at our best singing hymns in four-part harmony, which is one of the great glory of Anglicanism, It's choral music, of course. And the point about that is that we stand in equal relation to each other doing our own thing, top line, bottom line, middle lines, whatever it might be. But it is through the surrender of our kind of um, personal uh, prestige in that to serve a common purpose that I think we probably best approximate what heaven might be like. And then they sing the bloody descant. And all of a sudden, I think if it is the devil's siren, it takes us back to a fallen world of self-promotion and self-regard. But do you not
0: slightly feel for that middle-aged woman at the back of the church who all year round uh, just sings the hymns, not not too showily, just sings, just joins in as a devout Christian, and then come Christmas, her sense of joy at suddenly being able to let go? No. You don't? Not anymore. No, no, all
1: right. Afraid not. I mean, it may mea occult a bad vicar, and uh, I would wish her, uh, I was thinking about we, we're doing a bit of reordering at church at the moment, and we're having a soundproofed room put in in which infants may wail. So I might think anyone who wants to sing the Descant, you can go and stand in there with the children, and then everyone's happy. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> and you can make the similar noise to the children, is that what you're saying?
1: Well, yes, out of the mouths of babes and sucklings. But I just, think, I just think the Descant is the, is the work of the devil, and it should be ruthlessly trampled out. I
0: do agree about choral music, though, that actually it is that wonderful leveler, and everybody has their their moment in it. So it is it is a very uh, democratic form of music, isn't it? I think so. Mm.
1: Do you know, the funny thing as well. I mean, I've sung a lot of carols in my life. I've been a boy chorister and now a vicar. As you get older, some become more. For example, like "Away in a Manger," everyone's least favorite carol. The "All Things Bright and Beautiful" of Christmas. I find it almost unbearably moving now, uh, and I think it's because I've been at this parish long enough to have seen the kids grow up, mm. and so they bring their kids sometimes now, and I just find that overwhelmingly poignant. Yes, which is interesting, isn't it? And it's the simplicity of it. it it's not, again, it's not. Yes. You know, it's never going to win a prize, but it is powerful because so many people sing it. Yes. It is a beautiful, simple tune, isn't it? And also it rocks, which is, I mean, it doesn't mean it rocks and it rocks. <laughs> I mean, it rocks as a manger. Rock? Except said, "No, mm. mangers wouldn't rock. They'd have be been rather sturdy.
0: Yes, I think so, Yeah. You don't
1: really want, if you're feeding your donkey, you don't really want the manger to move around too much. You <laughs> want the, the manger to remain pretty, pretty static.
0: <laughs> Indeed. I've had many happy times singing church music, and uh, I have to say that I am one of those people who, given the opportunity, will sing it as loudly as I possibly can, at any opportunity.
1: Yes, but it's so interesting that, because if you were working, you know, I've, um, I've worked in places of different socioeconomic ranking, and I found that there are certain cohorts where you know you're going to get singing. If you're Yorkshire in its chapel, they'll sing in the wobbly, high-voiced Yorkshire way, with also e- extravagant portamento as people swoop for a note. It's just that it's so Yorkshire Methodist that. And then if you're in posh churches, it's um, people who went to English public schools who had congregational practice on a Friday and sang in chapel every day. And they will sing with extraordinary commitment. The other one, interestingly, is prisoners. Prisoners like to sing. I think because chapel is one of those rare moments of... uh, well, how to say enjoyment, but a sort of moment of where you're out of the kind of humdrum awfulness of daily prison life. It's the same as the people who stop you in the street. It's often service personnel, prisoners, public schoolboys, because they know what, and Roman Catholics, because they know what clergy are about. Mm. They see the collar and they get it.
0: It's it's a part of their life, always has been.
1: Yes. Yeah. And a good part of their life, very often, yes. So if someone who was uh, in whom you could confide and who was, I hope, kind and treated you with dignity, I hope so.
0: Mm. Well, I'm sure you do. I, I have come across one or two that in my life that I have, <laughs> I'm glad not to see again. Yeah, but, uh, you know. I
1: mean, if I'm not, I would fail in that if someone sang a descant, or <laughs> um, also if someone infringed too wildly on um, social isolation at the moment and might not be. The very model of the mild parish priest that I should be. No, but there you go.
0: No, I don't blame you. All right, well, just for you then, because I, I'm afraid I really do love descants. <laughs> I know, <laughs> but that's because I've got a loud, high voice and can often sing along with the sopranos in my in my ridiculous tenor.
1: Today. <laughs> So just, it's just showing off. I love a ridiculous tenor. <laughs> I have a ridiculous tenor too, which I enjoy enormously. Excellent. All right. Let's put Descats
0: into the time capsule. They're gone. They're gone. You'll never have to hear them again.
1: Bliss. I'm just wondering, will I ever regret that? But actually, I can't think of any circumstances in which I would regret that at all.
0: Well, I'll come back to you in a few years. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> lovely so it's time for your last item
1: oh well that's going to be david's knitting ah
0: your husband david
1: yes my late husband that's sounds late orphan i mean he was notoriously late for everything but he's um, <laughs> late in the sense of being extinct now do you know he was once eight days late for a holiday <laughs> we were away yeah. for 10 days and he had a bits and bobs and we never used to travel together because i like to get there in one go And he liked to stop every 40 minutes for a cappuccino and a fag. So it was too unbearable to travel together. So I set off and said, Okay, I'll see you later. And he said, Okay. And then he turned up eight days later. But so that was bad. Where had he been? Doing things. The garden needed doing, the boat needed doing. He was very easily distracted. And also he liked doing lots of things, including knitting. He was a he was a very um creative person. And uh he loved he always had to be busy as well. So he discovered um, knitting. But being him, it wasn't just straightforward knitting, boring. So he used to knit on hollow, round needles. He came home one day and told me that we'd got five alpaca, which I had not been consulted about at all. <laughs> and they grazed a the field not far from here with some other alpaca. But because he just liked the quality of the wool so much. And then when he died, which was uh, happened quickly, um, when I came home crazy in grief, as you are when those things happen, um, I kind of tidied because I thought tidying is, you know, when life is chaotic, try and tidy something, that's good. And I could tidy stuff away, but I couldn't tidy away his knitting, which was there waiting for him to drop one or pearl one, or whatever people who knit do. And it's still there now. And I don't think I will ever... Part with his his knitting, partly because it's his knitting, and partly because it's unfinished, and that for some reason keeps alive in me the hope that he is unfinished too, which I know theoretically because that comes with our territory, but there's something about the knitting that makes it real too. That they will this is yet you know. Um, something that is yet to be completed. So I'm hanging on to his knitting. Yeah, Actually, I have to say, my sentimental attachment to it was not matched by the dog who did eat a little bit of his knitting. And <laughs> I managed to rescue it from the dog's almost toothless jaws now. He's only got seven teeth left, but he managed to do a bit of damage with the seven that were left. So David's tube knitting, um, I will retain.
0: What Did you do just sing a descant of the dog and it ran away? I said, no, well, I
1: thought it would be a good idea because that would have made him howl. And if he was howling, he would have to release the knitting, yeah. But um, no, he's sort of he knows sometimes when he's done wrong, mm. so I have a rather stern voice when that happens. So I, I have the knitting, slightly ragged, slightly tacky with dog saliva, um, uh, on this pair of round needles and uh, with very fine wool, so that will. It's one of those things, isn't it? When, when somebody dies, I don't know if you've been through this, Mike, but when somebody dies, in that at that very moment, um, a ton and a half of stuff that was of immeasurable significance to them becomes litter, mm. because without them, their physical presence, it just doesn't mean anything anymore. But and so you have to do these kind of ruthless clearouts, and there were skip loads of stuff that went stuff that I. I really had to battle over to choose. To fortunately, I had David's brother, who I was a, who's a lovely man and a good. We're very close, and he came to help me. And he was very unsentimental about it. Mm. So stuff that was very important to David, but no longer meant anything without him being alive, went, and stuff stayed. And the knitting was one of the things that stayed.
0: Yes. It's a hard choice to make, isn't it? I've had friends and you know, family who've died and I've had to go through the things. But the most difficult was a friend of mine called Jeremy Pascal, who was a, a broadcaster and writer. Are you
1: Jeremy Pascal? I worked with Jeremy Pascal. Yeah.
0: Did you? He was a really lovely man, but unfortunately yeah. smoked cigars endlessly. He smoked-
1: he spoke, I remember him once filling the Ground Show Club with a fog so dense mm. and so noxious that it evacuated half of Soho.
0: <laughs> that would be Jeremy, yes. Yeah. But he he drank copious amounts of red wine and smoked cigars as if they were as if. Well, he didn't breathe without breathing cigar smoke. So clearly, in the end, it got him. But um, when he died, I sort of I, I am actually sitting in his chair. Really? Yes, and it's taped up. The arms have all got tape on them. The seat is gone, but I—I'll I, never get rid of it because it was his writing chair. Yeah. So I, this is the thing I brought away from his house.
1: Yeah. It's funny, so I found that with photographs of Dave, I found I found it unbearable actually at first. So they went into folders, and then I've started looking at them. Kind of um, my birthday and things like that. It just felt like the right thing to do. And then we were going to all meet on my birthday at David's grave with his mum and his brother and family. We couldn't open this was a stupid lockdown thing. So we, so I just looked at pictures of him and actually it was really good. And the ones that were most affecting are the ones where, because I don't know how to work an iPhone properly. You know, sometimes it just does like a tiny little film of about a second. Yes. And you think of taking a picture, but it just captures half a second of movement. Mm. Those are the ones, because all of a sudden it's a static image of him. And then all of a sudden, he just moves a little bit, mm. and uh, and those are really good. I'm really glad of, of those. Yes, that is a particular setting on the
0: phone, but I don't know what it is.
1: I can't, I can't. I just, uh, in the end, I I've, I've once actually put a phone in a bucket of water to stop it doing everything. It, <laughs> it worked. You know, I just couldn't switch it off, and it couldn't stop, and everything. So I put it in a bucket of water. And it never worked again after that. (laughs) Perfect solution. I did it with a sat-nav, too. David was very good at, some of them, an even-tempered sort of person. But one of the things that regularly thwarts me is impossible. to. I'm patient with people, Mike, because I have to be. I'm not naturally a patient person, but being a vicar has made me I have to be. And that's good. But all my impatience now goes to technology. And I had a sat-nav, this was a couple of years ago, that, there were roadworks on the A45 around Coventry. And my sat-nav didn't understand about the roadworks. And so I went, must have gone a dozen times round the roundabout. And it was about one o'clock in the morning. And I was on my own and you would have seen a black Skoda Yeti with a purple-faced bicker inside. All of a sudden, tear the sat-nav from its mounting and throw it out of the wind. <laughs> <laughs> I'll find my own way home, <laughs>
0: Very much. Well, I did. <laughs> yes, I of did. course. It was
1: a ridiculous. I was so so cross with
0: it. <laughs> it's a very good reaction.
1: What was I going to say about
0: the photographs? Actually, I was going to uh, talk about photographs. Just this morning, at the most inappropriate time, in the middle of all this, Facebook decided to send me a short video uh, saying, "Oh look, this is three years ago," and it was basically a video of my grandchildren, oh. running about in slow motion, laughing and chortling and running towards me with their arms open. And I thought, you bastards. Yeah. It's almost as if someone sat in a room and said, what's going to really get him?
1: Well, I get it all the same. when your memories of four years ago, and so often it's, you know, I think it Dante who says there is no um, kind of sadness worse than recalling in a sad time a happiness that's gone. And that's kind of true, isn't it? But actually, I would rather feel that sadness than feel nothing. And lots of people, I think, because loss is unbearable, settle for nothing. Mm. And, and I'm glad that I don't feel nothing. I'd rather feel sad than nothing, I think.
0: I completely agree with you. Uh, well, it's been absolutely lovely to talk to you, Richard. You too, Mike. I'm going to put that knitting in there with everything else. And, uh, and you know, hopefully one day, as you say, it will be finished. that would be lovely. A, a lovely thought. But thank you so much for talking to me. And, my pleasure. And uh, keep very well. Thanks, Mike. You've been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, the Reverend Richard Coles. Please subscribe to this podcast on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts from. This program was produced and edited by John Fenton Stevens and the music was by Past the Peas Music. You can follow my time capsule on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at myTCpod or you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Fenton Stevens. My Time Capsule is a cast off production. Thanks for listening and I hope to see you again next time. Well, I can't see you, obviously, but, you know, I hope you hear me again next. Oh, for goodness sake, I don't know why I bother.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more